Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is hospitalized after a fall at a Washington hotel. A spokesman says the 81-year-old tripped. It's Thursday, March 9th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up after the police killing of Breonna Taylor, an investigation by the Justice Department finds police in Louisville, Kentucky have a history of violating civil rights. An LMPD leader told the department, Breonna Taylor was a symptom of problems that we have had for years. Also, Russia unleashes a new round of rocket attacks across Ukraine, and this hour? The main thing here is we want to get to the truth. How did this happen? What could have been done to prevent it? What more needs to be done? A U.S. Senate committee holds a hearing today into the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. In sports, the Celtics win. Mostly cloudy, a shower today in the 40s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. At least six people have died across Ukraine today after a barrage of Russian missiles hit targets all over the country. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv the attacks also knocked out power in several areas. Most of the dead were in the western city of Lviv, where a Russian rocket hit a neighborhood. In a message on Telegram, Ukraine's Air Force claimed it had shot down 34 of the 81 missiles Russia launched. Ukraine's air defense is sophisticated and can usually shoot down most Russian missiles. But the Air Force said at least six missiles launched by Russia today were advanced missiles called Kinjals, which travel at hypersonic speeds. And the military says it does not have the capability to shoot them down. The attacks also knocked out power at the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, which is currently occupied by Russian forces. Joanna Kikisas, NPR News, Kyiv. Later this afternoon, President Biden releases his proposed budget for the next fiscal year. The White House claims the plan would reduce the federal deficit by $3 trillion over the next decade. Republican lawmakers are pushing back. They're demanding significant government spending cuts. A Senate panel will hold its first hearing into the Norfolk Southern toxic train derailment last month in Ohio. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports senators will hear from their own colleagues as well as from railroad executives and local leaders. Lawmakers want to know why the derailment happened, details on the federal response, and how to prevent an event like this from happening again. Ohio's two U.S. Senators, Sherrod Brown, a Democrat, and J.D. Vance, a Republican, as well as Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey, another Democrat, will testify in the first panel. The two Ohio senators have introduced a bill to increase safety regulations for trains carrying hazardous materials, as well as to increase fines for rail carriers. Also testifying before the senators are the head of Norfolk Southern, the railroad company whose train derailed, along with local Environmental Protection Agency and emergency response officials. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. The six-year-old boy who shot and wounded his first-grade teacher this year at a Virginia school will not be criminally charged. Virginia Commonwealth Attorney Howard Gwynn says the child is too young. We don't believe the law supports charging a six-year-old with a criminal offense as serious as this one. I think it's problematical to assume that a six-year-old understands the criminal justice system enough to be competent to stay in trial. It's not clear if others could be charged, including the child's parents. The superintendent of Newport News Virginia Schools was fired after the shooting incident. The teacher who was shot has indicated that she will sue, saying school administrators ignored warnings the child was a threat. This is NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's plan for rent control is a step closer to reality. Her plan was approved by the city council yesterday. It would tie most rent increases to inflation and cap them at 10 percent a year. The plan does not have the support of the landlord advocacy group Mass Landlords. Doug Quattrochi with that group believes there are better ways to help people struggling to pay their rent. There's a third of our renters who still haven't paid March rent and don't have a clear plan for how to do that. So when you look at how do you actually help folks, the answer is not rent control, and long-term zoning reform is too slow as well. Uh, It's got to be rental assistance short-term. The Boston rent control plan still needs approval from the state legislature and the governor. Quattrochi says he doubts that will happen. The emergency migrant shelter at the old Fort Devens might close soon. Governor Maura Healy's office tells Mass Live the shelter will be replaced by a new site in Concord. The Devens shelter opened last November. It was scheduled to operate for at least four months. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is criticizing Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. Powell told the House Financial Services Committee yesterday the Fed may need to raise interest rates further to combat inflation. Presley serves on the committee. She believes the Fed's policy is going to create millions of lost jobs. It's unconscionable, and our most vulnerable workers and families cannot afford to wait for you to realize the harm that you were doing. Powell says the cost of failing to control inflation would be much higher than the cost of a successful campaign to raise rates. Mount Alvernia High School in Newton will close at the end of this academic year. It's been open since 1935. The founders of the all-girls private Catholic school say they are selling the property. Most students will be moved to the Fontbonne Academy in Milton. It's unclear if current staff and faculty will also move to Fontbonne as well. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts Catering. Full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings. Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. The Celtics beat the Portland Trail Blazers 115-93 last night at the Garden. The Seas are now off until Saturday when they'll visit Atlanta. Tonight, the Bruins are back on the ice as they host the Edmonton Oilers. Mostly cloudy today with some isolated showers this afternoon. It'll get into the mid-40s. Mostly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will fall to around 30. Mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the mid-40s. We could see a little snow or rain on Saturday. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 7.06. WBUR supporters include the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And we're going now to Louisville, Kentucky, where the U.S. Justice Department has faulted the local police for a pattern of violating civil rights. The federal investigation started after the 2020 death of Breonna Taylor, who was killed by police in her apartment during a botched raid. Let's talk about all this with Morgan Watkins of Louisville Public Media. Welcome. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, we're, we're going to hear about what the community thinks, but first, the findings. What does the Justice Department say? Well, they found the Louisville Metro Police Department has discriminated against black people and repeatedly failed to deal with those disparities. The Justice Department said it found issues with excessive use of force, including police dogs, tasers, and neck restraints. Ah. They also said Louisville officers unlawfully carried out search warrants. Attorney General Merrick Garland came to the city to speak about the findings and said they found a pattern of police wrongdoing. Shortly after we opened the investigation, an LMPD leader told the department, Brianna Taylor was a symptom of problems that we have had for years. Well, is that how Louisville residents see it? Yes. Uh, soon afterwards, there was a gathering at a park, one that was central uh, to the protests that we had for months here in Louisville after Brianna Taylor's death a few years ago. And let's remember, Taylor was in her apartment at night when officers burst in. They were carrying out a search warrant. Taylor's boyfriend, fearing intruders, fired a single shot and struck an officer in the leg. Officers returned fire, killing Taylor. That search warrant, we learned later, should never have been issued. The Justice Department's findings vindicated people who were upset with the police department about Taylor's death and a lot of other issues. Here's Rao Cunningham, president of the Louisville NAACP. It validates what we've been saying. It encourages us to make sure that it is implemented in a fair and just manner. The mother of Breonna Taylor, Tamika Palmer, said it was heartbreaking that it took losing her daughter for this investigation to happen. Well, what happens now with the Louisville police? Well, city officials agreed to negotiate a legally binding consent decree that would require various reforms. In the meantime, the DOJ made over 30 recommendations for the department. Things like ensuring officers comply with constitutional limits when they're doing traffic stops. Also, requiring stricter rules and oversight when officers carry out search warrants. Well, you did say city officials agreed to work out ways that this would happen. Do residents believe that these changes will happen? They recognize this is a big deal for the federal government to come in and basically agree with what they've been saying for years about the Louisville Police Department. But there is skepticism. One major issue is the trust has been broken in this community because of the police's behavior. Garland emphasized the need for people here to work with the city on developing some of these reforms. Morgan Watkins of Louisville Public Media, thanks for joining us early. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Okay, Morgan mentioned city officials agreeing to negotiate solutions, so we have called an official who would have to do that. Craig Greenberg is mayor of Louisville. Mayor Greenberg, welcome to the program. Good morning, Steve. Okay, so now that the Justice Department has said the death of Breonna Taylor is not an isolated incident, part of this much wider pattern of abuse, what does that say about your department? Well, this report certainly paints a very painful picture of our past. Many of the uh, incidents that the Justice Department has in its report are infuriating to read uh, and really infuriating examples of, of abuse that no one is proud of happen in their city or, or any city. It's unacceptable. It's inexcusable. And we are focused on where we go from here. Um, I've been mayor for two months now. So I ran for office knowing I would inherit the report, not knowing what the findings, what would be, yeah. what they would be, but knowing that I would embrace the findings and embrace the opportunity to reform and improve our police department, to improve our city government, 
to improve our city as a whole so that everyone has a police department that they trust and that they're proud of. Mayor, of the various things you just said there, I'm thinking about the phrase, a portrait of our past. Is this also a portrait of the present, the way the Louisville police are now? Well, we have made some changes. Our city, even before I was uh, made mayor, uh, elected mayor, started to make some changes that have started to move us in the right direction. And I, when I took office on January 2nd, I put in a new interim chief of police, Jacqueline Gwynn Villaroel, who I am very proud of the work that she has done um, in the in the last two months. And so I do truly believe that we are moving in a new direction. As the Department of Justice said yesterday in its report, the overwhelming majority of our officers are good and honorable people who are committed to public service for the right reason. Um, none of that excuses any of the activities that took place. It doesn't excuse it in the past. It wouldn't excuse it if it takes place right now. And so we are going to focus on that reform improvement, on training, on improving supervision, on changing the culture and moving forward from here. Do you think the roughly one fourth of Louisville residents who are black have a fundamentally different experience with the police than everybody else? Uh, Historically, and maybe even still today, yes, um, which is unfortunate. And that's what we need to work on. Uh, One of the many things that we need to work on, we need to ensure that regardless of what race you are, what your gender is, whether you're a child or an adult, that you see police as someone who are there to help you, um, that they're to keep you safe. And that when there are incidents that they use the appropriate uh, levels of force, they do not use excessive force. Um, So we are going to have a lot of continued conversation and collaboration, not just with the Department of Justice, but also with the community to ensure that our entire community can trust the police department. You're going to negotiate this consent decree, which we'll just explain for people. That would be some court-supervised document where you would agree to do very specific things. Of course, you've still got to negotiate it, but what's one thing that you think is going to have to be in there that you can change? Well, I think just from our conversations with the Department of Justice over the past few days and yesterday, they are very focused on, on our training, ensuring that we have the right leaders in place at LMPD and that they have the right training for all of our officers, and then there's supervision of the training, that there's uh, reports of the training so that we can see very early if there are any patterns that emerge where things aren't going right and ensure that our officers have the training that they need to do constitutional and effective policing. And so I think um, our LMPD is, is ready to embrace this. It was definitely a difficult day for them as well yesterday, but we need to deal with the hard truths of the past so we can move forward together as a community. Do you hear voices on the other side of this debate out in the community, people essentially saying, Mayor, be careful, don't call off the police. We are concerned about crime. Make sure the police can still do their jobs. Is that part of the debate as well? I think everyone in the community wants a good police department. Uh, Nearly everyone that I've ever interacted with supports having a great police department. In fact, in Louisville right now, we actually need more officers. We are nearly 300 officers short, Hmm. which means we have fewer officers working in the neighborhoods with community leaders, with members of the clergy, uh, with small business owners that are working to prevent crime. And so I am strongly supportive of having more police officers. We are just going to ensure they have the right training and resources and leadership they need so that they can work collaboratively with the community in a way that we're proud of 
to prevent crime. Yes or no question, if you can do it, can you increase police funding while also reforming the police? That is our goal, yes. Okay. Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg, thanks so much, sir. Thank you. At least six people have died across Ukraine today after a new barrage of Russian missiles. Most of the dead were in the city of Lviv. Power is also out in many places, including at Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Amid the continued assault, Russia also appears to be using more propaganda and false information to try to destabilize Ukraine's neighbor, Moldova. Here's NPR's Shannon Bond. In February, Moldovan President Maya Sandu said Russia was plotting to overthrow her government, an allegation first made days before by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Russia denied the claim, and pro-Russian voices in Moldova dismissed the coup plot as a hoax. Valeriu Pasha is chairman of Watchdog Moldova, a think tank. They say that President Sandu used these scary stories in order to make people forget about economic and social problems and in order to uh, install a dictatorship in Moldova. Russia's defense ministry accused Ukraine of preparing to invade the separatist Moldovan region of Transnistria. Forged documents spread on Telegram and Twitter. A video claiming to show Romania massing military equipment on the Moldovan border racked up more than 300,000 views on Telegram. But according to Mark Sawyer of the disinformation monitoring company Logically, That video is actually a uh, rebroadcast of a rehearsal for a military parade back in 2022. It was old footage that was just recast as something new, which is pretty common. None of this surprises Pasha, given Russia's deep involvement in Moldovan politics since the breakup of the Soviet Union. He says today these pro-Russian narratives are pushed heavily by news outlets, politicians, and online influencers. From very serious evening talk shows on political subjects to TikTok. But things have escalated since Russia invaded Ukraine, and as Sandu's government has stuck to its pro-European stance. Just days before Sandu's accusations, Moldova's prime minister resigned, blaming crises caused by Russian aggression. Watchdogs polls find many Moldovans are receptive to Russian narratives blaming Ukraine and NATO for the war, and pinning high energy prices on their own government, rather than Russia cutting gas supplies. Pasha says the Kremlin's goal is to stoke confusion and exacerbate tensions in an already polarized country. Russia, in a country like Moldova, keeping this uh, low level of social cohesion is very important. In the hope it keeps Moldova from moving closer to Europe. Shannon Bond, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we look at how employers and workers are still struggling to understand what they want their workplace to look like in a post-pandemic world. It's 719. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. 
I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, the words in our favorite books never change. The words on our e-readers can. Writing used to be set in stone, literally and figuratively, but digital copyright holders can change the content of that favorite book if it's, say, on your iPad. The Boston Globe's Hiawatha Bray explains. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Mostly cloudy today with a high near 46. We'll also have some high winds and there's a slight chance of showers in the late afternoon and this evening. Tonight it falls to a low around 30. Then we'll have a mostly sunny Friday with a high near 46. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 720. On March 17th, join me at WBUR City Space for a conversation with NPR podcast host Kelly McEvers. We'll be talking about our new podcast called Embedded, the Capital Gazette. It looks into the shooting at the newspaper's offices in Maryland back in 2018. We'll be joined by a survivor of that shooting as well as the podcast producer. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from Angie. Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. To work from home or not to work from home? That is the question that workers and employers have been trying to answer since the pandemic began. Neha Naik is the founder of tech recruiting firm Recruitgeon. She says companies have to make accommodations to attract and keep workers. The number one primary motivator is flexibility. And I think what's really led into that is the fact that once COVID hit, a lot of us were, you know, even for me, my kids were home from school, right? So I was forced to take time off my computer to make them dinner, go for walks, do whatever it is to tire them out because everything was closed. Everything was closed. It kind of forced us to disconnect, eat dinners and lunches together and spend quality time with each other. So people really started appreciating the flexibility. And that's why a lot of times they say, I'm okay to take 10 or 15% off my base for that flexibility, because then I can actually be everything and more. Will remote and hybrid work remain the norm even if the pandemic uh, starts to wind down? Yes, I, I definitely think that, you know, remote hybrid work is here to stay. It's not going away for a very long time, only because people are starting to see the impact of the flexibility and just being able to do what they do best in different times, right? Because not everybody is great in the morning. They might be better at writing copy, for example, at night, or engineers might be coding at midnight. And so managers are learning that different people function great at different times. (laughs) Does uh, corporate America know that it's here to stay? (laughs) That's a really good question. You know, I think that there's definitely a lot of companies, especially enterprise level companies who've invested in lots of areas of land and invested in building these areas. And 
obviously all the utilities, right? And of course, there's the concept of are the people actually doing their job? Are they, you know, having other jobs on the side that we don't know about, which basically is affecting their productivity here? And so these are some doubts I feel that corporate America definitely still has, right? And the best way to kind of get over that is to really trust your employees and have objectives or, you know, milestone-based output instead of just saying you have to work 40 hours. Give them actual objectives and milestones that they can conquer in a certain amount of time. And that's when you truly know if they're getting the job done or they're sidelining and doing something else. So it used to be salaries, retirement benefits, medical benefits that used to sway employees to decide between the companies that they want to work for. But how much is working from home now entered that picture? Oh my God, a lot. You know, I think that's a lot of times as a tech recruiter, one of the first questions I get is, is this a remote position? Okay, it's not remote. Can I just come into the office once or twice a week? You know, I have young kids or I have a mother I'm looking after or I have my pets or whatever that looks like, right? And people getting used to that lifestyle during COVID where people go to the gym at noon during their lunch break, right? You can't do that in corporate office. What would it take for a prospective worker, the people that you work with to go into work? I think the biggest thing that people look for is ownership. I think that's, you know, just that ownership of projects, ownership of, you know, whether it's being a manager role, but actually having some type of ownership in the company. It could be equity. It could be, you know, any type of mentorship programs. You know, if they say, I hear, if I'm going to go in office, I want to have a true impact on their organization. You know, I just don't want to clock in and clock out. And then finally, work-life integration, right? So I don't really necessarily believe in this concept of work-life balance, but I do believe in work-life integration, which means that I will come into the office, but when I have things that I have to do, like a soccer game for my kid or a painting class for my daughter, I want to be able to leave, no questions asked, trusting that I will complete my work when I get back in the next day or complete it before I leave for the day. All right. So then on the idea of trust that a manager needs to have, I want to play this clip uh, from Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank. Kevin O'Leary has certain demands for his uh, remote workers. Here is on CNN's uh, This Morning program. I call my employees 24-7. That's the deal. If you don't work in the office, I can call you two in the morning. If we've got a crisis, they're going to answer. That's the way they're used to it now. Is that an acceptable compromise where if I'm a manager saying I'm going to trust you to work from home, but I need to be able to contact you pretty much whenever. You know, I think, yes, I think. And it also depends on which sector you work, right? Because again, being in the tech world, there's sprint weeks. There's week where product managers have to make sure that the product's working okay. Then there's, you know, the engineering team who sometimes get called, you know, called in at 3 a.m. because there's a bug you know, in the software and they have to come and fix it because if they don't do it, the product managers can't move forward. So there's going to be obviously times when, you know, the manager calls you. And I think that's totally acceptable. Even as I run my own business, sometimes, you know, I ping like, hey, we have this really important meeting tomorrow and I'll, you know, ping my executive assistant, you know, later at night because that's when I think about it, right? Now, is my expectation that she respond right away and work on it right away? Again, depends on situation, depends on the criticality boundaries and communication are key. You have to define that early on in the process when you're interviewing them and when you're onboarding them and define what critical issues mean to you, right? So that when the employee is onboarded, they're not shocked like, oh my gosh, why is this person reaching out to me at 9 p.m.? Have you noticed any generational differences in the people that you're recruiting in terms of what they expect with this new work culture in 2023? 
Yes, I definitely have. If I think about my parents, they had to go into the office, right? And I remember when I got my remote job, like they were like, are you seriously working? Like, is this for real? Is this legit? (laughs) So there's obviously going to be that, you know, just because of how they were raised and the way they had to do things. So when I talk to people from different generations, right, some people are like, oh, I don't really want to go into the office. And I see that more so now with, you know, millennials, because now we have, you know, young families and we want to stick around and, you know, be around the kids and, and do all that. And then I see kind of a divide, right? And so some of the people that are from the previous generations, um, some of them are, no, I want to be remote. I can't do the commute anymore. It's just not for me. And some of them are like, you know what? I actually want to come into the office because I don't really have much else to do right now with my life, right? I'm an empty nester and I actually want to come into the office because it makes my day go faster. It allows me to meet people. That's Neha Naik, founder of RecruitGeon, a tech recruiting firm that works with early stage tech companies. Neha, thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, we hear from the chairman of the Committee on Environment and Public Works ahead of its hearing today on the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. It's 729. A quick reminder that the WBUR app on your phone makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the new WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is expected to unveil his latest budget proposal this afternoon during a speech in Pennsylvania. NPR's Tamara Keith says the president's blueprint includes higher taxes on wealthy Americans in an effort to expand Medicare and reduce the federal deficit. According to the White House, the president has a plan that would reduce the deficit by nearly $3 trillion over the next 10 years. That comes through a combination of tax increases on the wealthy and big businesses and targeted spending cuts. The president will release details of his budget proposal in Philadelphia. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is hospitalized in Washington after suffering a fall. His office says the Kentucky Republican tripped and fell at a hotel last night while attending a private dinner. There's no word on the extent of any possible injuries. McConnell is 81 years old. Many Democratic senators joined Republicans yesterday to block changes to Washington, D.C.'s crime laws recently passed by the D.C. Council. The vote in the Senate was 81 to 14. The lawlessness and sense of unease that we're witnessing in our nation's capital and in cities across the country indicates that we need more, not less law enforcement. That's Republican Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee. The changes were blocked by the House last month. This is NPR News. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
The Massachusetts Attorney General wants gaming regulators to be more careful about how sports betting is advertised. AG Andrea Campbell wants the Gaming Commission to create more rules about advertising. She's worried that some ads encourage people to develop gambling problems. Campbell will bring her concerns to the commission later this morning. Legalized mobile sports betting is set to launch in the state tomorrow. A Boston City councilor is asking the MBTA police for help in cracking down on underage and public drinking at the St. Patrick's Day Parade. The parade in South Boston is on March 19th. It attracts hundreds of thousands of people. Councilor Michael Flaherty tells the Boston Herald he wants transit police to confiscate any alcohol they see from people at red line stations near the parade route. He says that could help prevent public drunkenness from becoming a problem later in the day. If this winter hasn't felt like winter to you, you're not alone. The past few months have been unusually warm and snowless for Boston. WBUR's Simone Rios reports that this type of winter may not be so unusual soon. The recorded snowfall totals at Logan Airport are a fraction of past years. Average temperatures are above freezing, with places like Worcester having their warmest winters in history. Climate researcher Elizabeth Burakowski says the models she's following project our winters becoming more like winters in North Carolina or Virginia. The winter we experienced, you know, the January and February of this year, which exhibited record warmth in 2023, those are going to be the normal as we move into the future. So by the end of the century, that type of winter would be unremarkable to us. It's going to be the norm. Burakowski says this winter highlights the need to address climate change through policy. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's Hybrid Graduate Certificate in Executive Coaching. Boost your career or start a new one. Apply now for fall, williamjames.edu. The Celtics snapped their three-game losing streak last night. They beat the Portland Trailblazers 115-93. The season next game is Saturday. The Bruins will be at the Garden tonight to skate with the Edmonton Oilers. At spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox beat a squad from Puerto Rico 9-3. The Sox will play the Yankees this afternoon. More clouds than sun today. It'll be windy with a high in the mid-40s. There's a slight chance of showers late this afternoon. Tonight, cloudy with a low around freezing, mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the mid-40s. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Yeah, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The Senate today opens the first congressional hearing on the Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Senators on the Environment and Public Works Committee expect to hear from railroad executives, local leaders, and also their own colleagues. NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo is here with a preview. Jimena, what will the senators try to get out of this hearing? 
Lawmakers want to learn exactly why the derailment happened, details on the federal and local response, and steps should this ever happen again. If you recall, at the start of February, a train carrying hazardous materials derailed, causing a spill of toxic chemicals. Residents had to temporarily evacuate for controlled burns to get rid of some of the chemicals, and there have been many health and environmental concerns. There will be two panels of witnesses. The first will actually be fellow Senate colleagues, Ohio Senators Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance, and Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey will be giving their own testimonies about how their communities were affected. The second panel includes the head of Norfolk Southern. Also speaking will be Environmental Protection Agency officials as well. Now, there has uh, been a lot of scrutiny into how this happened. So what could we hear from the railroad and its CEO, uh, Alan Shaw? In prepared remarks obtained by NPR, the Norfolk Southern CEO said he is deeply sorry for the impact and, quote, determined to make it right. Norfolk Southern is really trying to get ahead of the safety issue before what's expected to be intense questioning from all committee members on the company's safety record. The National Transportation Safety Board this week opened a rare special investigation into the company's safety practices after another train derailment in Ohio over the weekend and the death of a conductor in Cleveland earlier this week, who police say was killed when a dump truck hit a train car in a rail yard. What can Congress do? Well, the two Ohio senators testifying today spent time in East Palestine and will focus on the need for tighter regulations and passage of a bill that they recently introduced called the Railway Safety Act. It increases safety procedures for trains carrying hazardous materials, ensures crews have at least two people, and increases fines for rail carriers. Some of these were also recommended by Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg earlier in February. Now, the National Transportation Safety Board issued an initial report into what caused the derailment. They found that it was in part caused by an overheating wheel bearing. So the department and Congress are really also using this event as a way to push for reforms beyond just what caused this particular derailment. And uh, Republicans, including uh, former President Donald Trump, have criticized uh, President Biden because he has not visited East Palestine. Um, How is the administration responding? Mm -hmm. During a press call with reporters, uh, Delaware Senator Carpenter said that his understanding is that the president will make a trip. And and he's the one that's the chair of this committee that's holding the hearing. But the White House has not announced any trips. And instead, officials have continuously pointed to having people on the ground within what they say was hours of the accident. Either way, the president has come out in favor of Brown and Vance's bill. And he specifically called it a tool to hold rail companies accountable. Accountable. It also helps that the bill is bipartisan. Separately, the Transportation Department is working on finalizing its own rule that would require at least two crew members on board. This is very similar to in the bill. Now it's important to note that the train that derailed did have three crew members, but the department says generally more crew members can help in response to issues should they happen again. NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo, thanks. Thank you. We have the sounds of protest in Israel. People are blocking roads today, the latest wave of dissent against a right-wing government. You will recall the coalition of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu wants to shift the balance of power in Israel's democracy, taking the authority to overrule Israel's Supreme Court. NPR's Daniel Estrin is on the streets of Tel Aviv. Hi there, Daniel. 
Hi, Steve. What are you seeing? Oh, I'm seeing hundreds, thousands of Israeli protesters demonstrating. They're actually in hundreds of spots across the country. I'm in a, a main downtown boulevard in Tel Aviv. Uh, there's a lot of police here, uh, people blocking the roads. There are even protesters in yachts uh, blocking one of Israel's main ports. There are protesters wow. in their cars blocking the entrance to Israel's international airport. They're trying to disrupt Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's flight to Rome today. Uh, these protests are also disrupting Defense Secretary Austin, uh, Lloyd Austin's visit uh, here today. Now, the protesters are, are they have one goal. They want the right-wing government to stop advancing legislation, as you mentioned, to weaken the judiciary. We are even hearing now members of Netanyahu's own party saying, let's put on the brakes, we need dialogue. The government says it is considering a compromise to this controversial legislation. The opposition says, don't fool us, it's just more of the same. And, you know, top figures in Israel's security establishment are now calling this Israel's deepest domestic crisis in history. I'm glad you mentioned Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense from the United States, who's trying to visit uh, because, of course, Israel is a very close ally of the United States and vice versa. This is something that a lot of people are closely following here in the United States for a lot of different reasons. I understand that in addition to people on the streets, you are hearing from people in the military establishment, people who are defending the country. What are you hearing? Oh yeah, I've met uh, several combat reservist officers today in the streets. Uh, they're signing petitions with their, their fellow reservist uh, soldiers and officers saying they refuse or they will refuse to serve in the military if Israel passes these laws weakening the judiciary. It's an unprecedented phenomenon in a country where the military is really holy. Um, you know, I spoke to one man, Omer Dunk, who's an F, he was an F-16 navigator. He retired last year. His job was to, to navigate uh, the bombs dropped uh, in Israel's operations. And he says, you know, navigators like him, they're afraid that if Israel's judiciary is weakened, it could open people up like him to war crimes, prosecution, and even they say there's this crisis of trust that the far-right Israeli government now could launch uh, operations and wars that, that they don't believe in. Take a listen. We are bombing a lot of buildings. And if we can't trust the decision makers, it will be very hard to participate in such a process. You know, Steve, we are also seeing violence in the West Bank. Uh, uh, six Palestinians killed, gun, including gunmen yesterday. A 14-year-old Palestinian boy died of his wounds from that raid, Israeli raid today. Israel killed three more Palestinian gunmen. So we're seeing instability in the West Bank, and the occupied West Bank, in Israel. This is multiple fronts. Multiple fronts, multiple sources of pressure on the Israeli state, and NPR's Daniel Estrin is covering it all from the streets of Tel Aviv. Daniel, thanks so much. You're very welcome. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, we hear from a virologist who's pushing back on allegations by the U.S. by U.S. officials that COVID-19 leaked from a lab in China. It's 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com.
We'll have some gusty winds today under mostly overcast skies, and with temperatures topping out in the mid-40s, there's a slight chance of rain showers late this afternoon and this evening. Otherwise cloudy tonight with temperatures falling to the low 30s. Tomorrow we end the week with a sunny day back in the mid-40s. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Now, in business news, Boston-based software company AppQs is cutting its workforce by nearly 15 percent. That means 16 people are out of a job. The Boston Business Journal reports two of those workers live in the Boston area. AppQs did not give a reason for the layoffs. Needham-based Assured Allies says it's quickly growing thanks to getting a $42.5 million during its latest round of fundraising. The insurance tech startup provides wellness, savings, and insurance programs. It expects to use the money to expand its partnerships and grow its member base. A movie theater in downtown Waltham is being turned into a performing arts center. The building's new owner tells the Boston Globe that the old embassy cinema will become home to a rhythmic gymnastics school. Two of the theater's six movie screens will be kept to show films. It's 744. The price of food continues to rise across the country, but millions of households are seeing a big drop in government food stamp benefits. When the rent and the inflation went up, it really hurt. There are lots of us out here who you can't buy a gallon of milk when we need it. I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. What you see on social media is not necessarily real life. Many people use filters when they're posting photos on social media. Filters that change the light and maybe make people look brighter, more attractive. If you don't know, now you know. TikTok has unveiled a new filter powered by artificial intelligence, which might be too good. NPR's Bobby Allen takes a look. Annie Luong noticed it right away when she opened up TikTok recently. I just saw a lot of girls turning on this filter and their reactions to the filter and how it was such an advanced filter. So I want to try it. Luong is talking about TikTok's new beauty filter called Bold Glamour. It's become a viral sensation because it's different than past beauty filters. It uses advanced artificial intelligence. Instead of just putting a digital layer over your face, this filter completely recreates your nose, chin, cheeks, and eyes using a process known as machine learning. Luang, a 28-year-old who works in management consulting in Toronto, looked at herself in the bold glamour filter and thought, Okay, this looks pretty cool, but it just didn't feel like reality. And maybe that it's because I know that it's not reality where I'm like, I, I know that's not how I look in person. I know that's, I'm not even going to try to look like that. Some of the tens of millions of TikTokers who have tried the filter have had similar reactions. Like, this is hard to tell that it's a filter. 
This is just so scary, like it's so realistic, this one, and so damaging for people that think that this is what everyone should look like. I don't know what kind of sorcery that filter is. Not only is the filter creating a glossier, skinnier, more movie star version of yourself, but people have been freaking out because it's just so persuasive. Luke Hurd is a consultant who works on filters for Instagram and Snapchat. It is different. It's not cartoony. It's not drastically aging you or turning you into a child or, or flipping your gender on its head. And there are a lot of times where you have to kind of look down in the corner and see, wait, is there a, is there a filter on this person? Uh, and, and lately it's been yes. <laughs> that blurring of the line between reality and fiction is something that can have a lasting effect on your sense of self, says Renee Engelm. She's the director of the Body and Media Lab at Northwestern University. So your own face that you see in the mirror suddenly looks ugly to you. It doesn't look good enough. It looks like something you need to change. It makes you more interested in plastic surgery or other kinds of procedures. Engeln says some might see a TikTok filter as a playful thing, but it should be taken seriously. It's not like a TikTok filter directly causes clinical depression, but I think it adds to this culture where a lot of young people are feeling really alienated from themselves. Whether creating freakishly good images out of scratch or chatbots that can hold sometimes disturbing conversations, artificial intelligence has been taking the internet by storm. And TikTok and other social media companies are trying to incorporate the latest AI magic into their apps to seize the moment. TikTok wouldn't comment on the design of the filter, and they wouldn't discuss how the feature could potentially worsen people's image of themselves. Luang in Toronto says she's happy to see so many people on TikTok, mostly young women, using the filter to talk about how social media perpetuates unattainable beauty standards. Many who commented on her video using the filter said, you know, I prefer the version of you without this filter. But then there were a few comments where it's like, oh, it, it improves so much, like you look so much better, like you should always keep that filter on. Another TikToker said as she turned the filter on then off, no wonder everyone feels so ugly all the time. Bobby Allen, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, why high school theater programs may be the next battleground in the ongoing culture wars. And in 20 minutes, U.S. lawmakers got a briefing yesterday about some ongoing mysteries that have stumped intelligence officials. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with The Great Leap, a friendship game of basketball midst turmoil at Tiananmen Square turns into a different game through March 19th, LyricStage.com. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, the words in our favorite books never change. The words on our e-readers can. Writing used to be set in stone, literally and figuratively, but digital copyright holders can change the content of that favorite book if it's, say, on your iPad. The Boston Globe's Hiawatha Bray explains. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. 
Mostly cloudy, windy, and mid-40s today. Cloudy tonight in the low 30s. Tomorrow, it'll be sunny and in the mid-40s. Right now, it's 36 degrees in Boston at 7.50. Right now at WBUR.org, read about the Repair Cafe. It's a group of volunteers who will fix things for free, from bikes to jewelry to electronics and more. Organizers say it's a way to save money and a way to save resources. The society we're in is all driven on like digging more things up out of the earth, turning them into products, and then sending them to a landfill as fast as we can. That doesn't seem like a good plan if you think of us living on a finite ball called the earth, because you'll eventually run out of things to dig up and places to throw them. Martha Biebinger takes you inside a repair cafe held regularly in Framingham. Check out her story at WBUR.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Is high school theater becoming a battleground in the culture wars? Plays and musicals have been challenged or canceled over content that's deemed not family-friendly. One such case is in Cardinal High School in Middlefield, Ohio. As NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, the story there took an unexpected pirouette. The 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee is a musical that debuted on Broadway in 2005, ran for nearly three years, and won two Tony Awards. At the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, my parents keep on telling me, just being here is winning. High schools love this show and perform it often. In the show, a lot of the kids are dealing with problems at home or like self-image issues. Riley Machenga is a senior at Cardinal High School. She was cast as Logan Schwartzengrubinier, a competitor in the spelling bee who has two gay dads. Carl dad is kind of like a drill sergeant with spelling. Like he wants his daughter to be super successful and win, win, win. Where Dan is more like, okay, it's time for a break. Like we can... Let her chill out for a little bit. Oh, my Tolka friends roll their eyes. They're incredibly petty because my dad's are my dad's. And I'll write enough already. Whoa, with me. Whoa, with me. Which is why I got a win spelling bee. Rehearsals were going well, but about three weeks in, the director, music teacher Vanessa Allen, got a call from the Cardinal School's superintendent asking why was the school board getting, I don't know if he said phone calls or emails about the school musical. And he mentioned something about inappropriate content. There's some dispute over what the objections were. Allen says she was told they were sexual innuendo, the appearance of Jesus, and the two gay dads. Superintendent Jack Cunningham has denied those were the issues. He declined to be interviewed, but in a public statement said the musical was canceled because of vulgarity. Director Vanessa Allen called a meeting with the cast and crew and their parents and told them the show was canceled. And then we gave them the option and said, we are willing to, for lack of a better word, to fight this decision, but only if that's what you want us to do. And we were all like, yes, let's fight it. Let's do it. We love this show. We think it's a really good show and something worth putting on. Don't mess with the tight-knit world of theater people. Word spread. There's something I sort of feel like I have to get off my chest. Um, Actor Jesse Tyler Ferguson, uh, who starred in Modern Family, was in the original cast of Spelling Bee. He took to Instagram. I guarantee that there's someone at this, this school who is maybe being raised by gay parents, but definitely more than one person at the school is gay or lesbian or bisexual. And the message that this sends to them that that is not 
family appropriate or family friendly rather is toxic and His message reached um, thousands of people and, and ended up on the news. A school musical here in Northeast Ohio is getting national attention over some controversy. Meantime, the original creators of Spelling Bee called Vanessa Allen in Middlefield. They found my contact information and offered to make changes. Got that? Creators of a beloved Broadway musical offered to make changes for a high school in Middlefield, Ohio. It's heartbreaking for the kids if you cancel it in the middle of rehearsals and construction and the rest. That's librettist Rachel Scheinkin, who won a Tony for Spelling Bee. Now, a lot of shows have junior versions kids can perform. There isn't one for Spelling Bee, except for an alternate version of a song about puberty. But what's pretty unusual here, the creators agreed to consider the school board's specific changes, more than 20 of them. There were a lot of different requests, and we weren't able to accommodate ones that changed the story or the character arc. But we were very happy to accommodate ones that changed individual words and a whole lot of damn and Can you say on NPR? No, we have to bleep it. If you can't say it on NPR, then you can understand why they don't want to say it in Middlefield. And we can be sympathetic to that. She agreed to change good lord to good grief. She changed a line about someone being a virgin. She did not agree to change this song. I'm not that smart. My siblings have been telling me that for years. There was a request in the song, I'm not that smart, change, I'm not that smart. The kid sings, I'm not that smart, because that's what he hears from his family. Clearly, that's a bigger change than we're going to be able to make, and it has to do with the character's story, who comes to appreciate his own intelligence. I might be smart. My siblings can't believe that I got it right. A lot of the changes the board wanted would have made the show kinder and gentler. But the show is about a competition. School board officials asked that one character not be a bully. They asked that another not lament feeling like a loser. We thought it sounds like they're wanting all the characters to be nice. And not all characters in drama are nice. Theater is about more than just getting on stage and singing a song and dancing a dance or whatever. Cardinal High School senior Riley Machinga. It's about making people think critically, think about life in ways that you wouldn't on a day-to-day -day basis, and empathize with people. Empathy. In some ways, that's what happened at Cardinal High School. The school board announced the show would go on. In an email to NPR, Superintendent Jack Cunningham wrote, we are focused on learning from our situation and moving forward internally. Whatever the original reasons for the objections might have been, we came to a place of common understanding and common sense and consideration for the students. And I think it's fair to say there's consideration for the students on all sides. To ideate is to form an image or idea to think. Nice ending to a difficult story. Vanessa Allen is thrilled her students are getting to perform. But this experience has shaken her. I think we all see what's happening nationally with censorship, and I never thought that I would be dealing with it. But now, after all this, I mean, I'm starting to question everything I'm doing now. Teachers are definitely nervous. They're nervous about just saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. Drew Cohen is CEO of Music Theater International, which licenses musicals to, among others, thousands of high schools. The last thing they want to do is have a problem with the parent body or the board because they picked the wrong show. 
wrong is subjective, and that makes it a tough environment for high school theater programs. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. At least six people are dead in Russia's newest missile attacks across Ukraine, targeting infrastructure and apartment buildings. It's Thursday, March 9th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden unveils his budget proposal today. The White House says it aims to reduce the deficit. We see this as a value statement on what the president sees in the future of this country. Uh, and so he wanted to make sure it was fiscally responsible. Also, the scandal unfolding over millions of dollars in jewels that the Saudi government gave to Brazil's former president. And this hour, we go sledding. We have snow days. We shovel out our spot and fight over a parking spot. And all of that is changing. How climate change may be changing Boston's winters and the region's character. Mostly cloudy today in the 40s. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The UN's nuclear watchdog agency says Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has lost its outside power supply. It's using diesel generators. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports the nuclear facility is controlled by Russia. The Vienna-based IAEA has confirmed the Zaporizhia plant has lost all of its off-site power. It happened when the plant's last remaining 750-kilovolt line was disconnected following a barrage of Russian missile attacks across Ukraine. Ukraine's nuclear energy operator says the plant is operating on diesel generators for the sixth time since it was taken over by Russian forces a year ago and that it has enough fuel to last at least 10 days. The IAEA director general has called for a commitment to protecting the safety of the plant, saying each time Russia launches missile attacks that cut off power to the plant, it's rolling the dice on a possible meltdown from overheating reactor fuel. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. The head of Norfolk Southern Railroad will likely face pointed questions today over the toxic train derailment last month in eastern Ohio. NPR's David Shaper reports several senators are proposing tougher rail safety regulations. Ohio's two senators will discuss their bipartisan Railway Safety Act, which would tighten restrictions on trains carrying hazardous materials while increasing rail inspections, among other measures. 
They'll be followed by Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw, who in prepared remarks said that he is deeply sorry for the impact this derailment has had on the people of East Palestine and that he is determined to make it right. But after two more serious Norfolk Southern incidents in recent days, including another freight train derailment and the death of an employee in a collision with a dump truck, the National Transportation Safety Board has launched a rare and broad investigation into Norfolk Southern safety culture and practices. David Shaper, NPR News. Democratic and Republican House members got a briefing yesterday about the federal debt. There's a standoff over whether to increase the government's ability to borrow money to pay the bills it has already incurred. Republicans say before they do this, they want to slash federal spending. President Biden says he'll release his budget plan today. Winter storm warnings are still posted for parts of northern and eastern California. The unbelievable amount of snow that's fallen in the past couple of weeks can be measured in yards. In southern California, people have been stuck in their homes in San Bernardino County, just east of Los Angeles. Art Delacruz is with a charity that's helping dig people out. So some of these people have been homebound for 11 days. They've run out of food. They, in some cases, don't have power. They don't have their own generators. Now a flood watch is posted for much of California. A heavy storm is forecast to bring so much rain, it'll melt a lot of that snow and trigger dangerous flooding. You're listening to NPR. From WBNR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. White supremacist propaganda events are at an all-time high in New England. A report out this morning from the Anti-Defamation League shows hate activity across the region nearly doubled between 2021 and 2022. Overall, Massachusetts had the second most recorded propaganda incidents in the country. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is defending the city's outdoor dining restrictions in the North End. In other city neighborhoods, restaurants can set up dining areas in public on-street parking spaces. But in the North End, this year, restaurants will not be able to use parking spots. And any sidewalk tables must leave a certain width for pedestrians. Wu says that's because the streets there are too narrow. Some of the conditions that we anticipate this summer from what we have seen over the last few summers make it so that we can't stand behind a proposal to take up the entire street this year. Wu's comments come on the heels of an amended lawsuit against the city over its dining restrictions. Five North End restaurant owners allege Wu is biased against white men and Italian-Americans. The Lemonster man accused of violent behavior on a cross-country flight is due in court today. The man was on a flight from Los Angeles to Boston last weekend. Investigators say he tried to attack a flight attendant. He's also accused of trying to open the plane's emergency exit during the flight. State senators will debate a plan today that would allow restaurants to keep selling drinks to go. The pandemic-inspired rule lets restaurants sell limited amounts of alcohol with takeout meals. It's set to expire next month unless it's extended. The Boston Globe reports lawmakers in the House already included that extension in their version of this year's budget. MIT researchers are learning just how much wildfires can hurt the planet's ozone layer. That layer protects us from the sun's harmful rays. Susan Solomon is an MIT professor. Her research found that after a wildfire in Australia in early 2020, the area over the continent experienced a 3 to 5 percent loss in the ozone layer. This thing only lasted for about a year. 
So if it never happens again, then things are probably okay. But if we start seeing more frequent and intense wildfires, as we believe climate change is likely to do, then it could be a real problem and it could slow down the healing of the Earth's ozone layer. Solomon says the ozone layer has begun healing since a ban on the chemicals known as CFCs took effect in the 90s. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, investing for people's education and retirements for 95 years and proud sponsor of the Summer Search Program, providing year-round mentoring, life-changing experiences, college advising, and lasting support for resilient, low-income high school students, inspiring them to become responsible, altruistic leaders. The Celtics beat the Portland Trailblazers 115-93 last night at the Garden. The Seas are now off until Saturday. The Bruins are back home tonight to face the Edmonton Oilers. And at spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox beat the World Baseball Classic team from Puerto Rico. The final was 9-3. The Sox play the Yankees this afternoon. Mostly cloudy today with some isolated showers this afternoon. It'll get into the mid-40s. Mostly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will fall to around 30. Mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the mid-40s. We could see a little snow or rain on Saturday. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include iDrive, providing cloud backup to protect PCs, Macs, mobile devices, and servers, along with iDrive E2, offering hot S3-compatible object storage at iDrive.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. All right, U.S. intelligence agencies are in the business of gathering knowledge so the government can do its job. This week, their leaders are also being asked about what they do not know. Now, the intelligence officials take questions from a House committee today. They sat before a Senate panel yesterday. They're coming off an impressive year when they successfully forecast the invasion of Ukraine. But lawmakers now want answers to a different set of mysteries with fewer definite answers. NPR's Greg Myrie covers the agencies. Greg, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What do the lawmakers want to know? Well, lawmakers in both parties want to know the origins of COVID, and they agree China hasn't been forthcoming about the virus that began there, and this is part of broader friction in the relationship with China. Mm -hmm. Now, the intelligence community is considering two possibilities with COVID, one, a transmission from a wild animal to a human, or the second one, a leak from a scientific lab. Now, we should stress that most of the scientific community strongly believes it came from an animal, but some Republicans, like Senator Susan Collins of Maine, support the lab leak theory. I just don't understand why you continue to maintain on behalf of the intelligence community that these are two equally plausible explanations. They simply are not. Now, the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, responded by saying that there's just not enough evidence to make a clear assessment at this point, And there is some divided opinion in the intelligence community about whether it was a lab leak or came uh, from a natural transmission. Just not willing to say it is one answer based on what she says she's hearing from the analysts. What's another mystery for which the best answer, according to the intelligence community, would seem to be we don't know? 
Well, the intelligence community produced a lengthy report last week into the so-called Havana syndrome. These are the ailments that have been suffered by U.S. intelligence officials, uh, diplomats, and soldiers overseas. But the report didn't offer a clear explanation. It said there was no evidence that it was an attack by a foreign government, as, as some suspect. Perhaps it came from uh, existing medical conditions. And this just didn't sit well with uh, New York Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. It essentially says is there's no external cause, which I think is really problematic. I find it unacceptable that we are not continuing diligent analysis of possible causes. Greg, bigger question here. Why would it be that the U.S. was so effective at forecasting Russian troop movements last year and less effective with some of these other questions? I think it really goes to the origins of the intelligence agencies. They were set up to deal with with questions of the Soviet Union or Russia and focus on military issues. That's what they're built to do. That's what they're comfortable with. That's where their expertise is. These issues we've just been talking about really are more very difficult scientific questions. Well, now they need to provide real-time information about the global rivalry with China. So what are they saying there? Well, they're really looking at President Xi Jinping and talking about the strident language he's been using, uh, talking about the U.S. trying to contain or encircle China. But they also uh, added that they think he wants to deal with domestic economic problems and therefore beneath the rhetoric may want just a stable relationship. Okay, so a little bit of insight there. NPR's Greg Myrie, thanks so much. My pleasure. One of the several government efforts to unravel one of those mysteries, COVID-19's origin story, was centered at the Energy Department. That agency's assessment, described as low competence, was that the coronavirus leaked from a lab in China. Angela Rasmussen is a principal research scientist at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan. She says the report could make it harder to study dangerous diseases. Professor, I I checked your Twitter feed moments before we started, and I see a couple of things. You're a fan of Pugs, the Seattle Seahawks, and you have a pinned tweet to an article that explains why the pandemic began from nature. So I'm assuming you doubt the Energy Department's conclusion. Why? So I doubt the Energy Department's conclusion simply because I haven't seen the evidence. It's been described as low confidence, and I just don't see how something, whatever it is, that is low confidence could really contradict that large pile of scientific evidence that does suggest that the pandemic began at the Wanan seafood market through zoonotic spillover. What evidence would be needed for you to trust their assessment? Yeah, so I've actually discussed this quite a bit, and I've been thinking a lot about it. And um, I think that the one thing that would convince me that it did come from a lab would be the intelligence community being able to place what we call a progenitor virus at any lab in Wuhan. And that would be the virus that existed immediately before becoming SARS coronavirus 2. So uh, whether it's from an animal, whether it was naturally collected, whether it was made through molecular virology work, There is no virus that we know of that is in possession of anybody that was the immediate precursor to SARS coronavirus 2. If that could be placed in a lab, that would completely change my thinking. That would be evidence of a laboratory origin. But so far, that evidence has not been available. And I really doubt that that is the evidence that uh, the Department of Energy has, because if it were, it would not be a low confidence finding. Do you allow for any wiggle room for the argument that COVID's origins are unresolved? I actually don't. Um, And I think that the statement that it is unresolved is really from people who haven't been able to engage 
thoroughly with the evidence that we do have. So the only evidence that suggests that it might have come from a lab is the fact that the pandemic began in Wuhan, where there happens to be a coronavirus lab. However, there's many cities in China and throughout the rest of the world, including Canada, including the U.S., where there are labs that do this. If it was from a lab, it could have been from any one of those. However, we have a lot of evidence that does suggest that it was from the market. So when you hear these other theories, how does that make you feel as a virologist? Because I could hear it all the time, people saying, well, you're not even open to the possibility that science can change, that these, uh, these answers uh, maybe evolve. Yeah, that's probably one of the most frustrating aspects of it. So myself and all of my colleagues who, who authored that paper that you mentioned at the beginning, that is the pinned tweet, uh, the paper that really shows the evidence that it did begin at the Wannan market, I think we're all um, open to the fact that evidence could emerge that shows that it didn't come from the market, that it came from a lab. And I think every good scientist is going to be open to that. That's literally our job is to try to make our hypotheses not true, to falsify them. Um, as my colleague says, to kick the tires of those hypotheses and, and see if they work. And so far, that, that hypothesis about the market origin has stood up. I think it's very frustrating to have people assume that we make a decision sort of arbitrarily and then we stick with that no matter what. I think we're always willing to change our hypotheses should new information come in. And it would be great to see what information the Department of Energy is using to make their decision. Angela Rasmussen is a virologist at the University of Saskatchewan. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, eh? Lively discussion there. People in Turkey and Syria who lost their homes in an earthquake need somewhere to stay for months. We heard last week on the program about people living in temporary homes, little portable houses dropped down in rows amid the ruins of their neighborhoods. That's the 21st century solution. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports on the old school solution, people living in a centuries-old trading post for travelers. Near the Turkish harbor town of Payas stands the Sokullu Mehmet Pasha complex. It was designed by the most renowned architect of the Ottoman period, Mimar Sinan. Although built in the 16th century as a caravanserai, a way station for passing caravans, it's made out of stone and built like a fortress. And the powerful earthquake and aftershocks that rumbled through last month caused only minor damage. Its rooms are now full of families who either have no home left standing or are afraid to sleep there. And many more live in tents outside the complex. 14-year-old Nisa Aydin, with her mother and others from her family of seven, says they're sharing one room in the complex. She says they were lucky to find someone leaving just as they arrived five days earlier. She spoke through an interpreter. No one uh, really told them to come have shelter here. They guessed that because it's like an old structure that might be still standing and safe. When Aydin mentions the family home, her five-year-old brother Mehmet chimes in, perhaps feeling that his sister wasn't conveying just how scary the earthquake was. He says the earthquake was very strong and his mom cried out, the walls are coming down before they ran out to safety. When asked how long they might be here, Nisa shrugs and says, maybe a month or two. And Mehmet says, until our house is fixed. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. With water, electricity, food, and sanitation, families here feel relatively fortunate. For all the heat the government has taken for its initial slow response to the disaster, it did open this 140,000-square-foot space to those displaced by the earthquake. Not far from the town of Samanda, an ad hoc aid distribution center is being run by volunteers from the area. 
I meet one of them just as he tells a family of five that if he can't find a tent for them, he'll give them his own. His name is Borch. He asked that his family name not be used, saying he doesn't want either help or trouble from the government. He says so far they've been able to get tents and other aid out to the surrounding villages, which he says mostly haven't received official help yet. We are an independent group. We met on the way here and agreed to work together. We try to keep ourselves healthy. This is my 18th day. It's way beyond the danger limit. There are some aid groups here, but no sign of AFAD, the Government Emergency Disaster Response Agency. AFAD has been accused of confiscating aid from NGOs and opposition political parties. Borch says their priorities have shifted as the weeks passed, from basics like sleeping bags and food to more permanent solutions for shelter, so that greenhouses, for instance, can stop being sleeping areas and farmers can go back to producing crops and milk. Because all the farmers are sleeping in their greenhouses that are normally for production. The tent complexes are useless. Because the farmers have cows, they can't leave them. Once the electricity is back, they will put on the cow milking machines. Similar unofficial aid groups have sprung up around the earthquake zone, distributing tents and other supplies people will need to get through the coming weeks and months. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Samanda, Turkey. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau discusses efforts to fight surprise or hidden charges known as junk fees. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage, themusicemporium.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, the words in our favorite books never change. The words on our e-readers can. Writing used to be set in stone, literally and figuratively, but digital copyright holders can change the content of that favorite book if it's, say, on your iPad. The Boston Globe's Hiawatha Bray explains. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Mostly cloudy today with a high near 46. We'll also have some high winds, and there's a slight chance of showers in the late afternoon and this evening. Tonight it falls to a low around 30. Then we'll have a mostly sunny Friday with a high near 46. Right now it's 37 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from EBSCO, offering clinical decision support resources and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed and drug information from Meritive. Learn more at dynamedx.com. And from SelectQuote, for over 35 years, SelectQuote has been committed to helping customers find life insurance that fits their budget. Customers can shop multiple life insurance carriers and compare rates at SelectQuote.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The Biden administration is asking state leaders to help fight so-called junk fees. 
extra charges people pay on everything from internet bills to airline tickets. Let's discuss this with Rohit Chopra, who is director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Why is now the time to address this? Well, I think we've seen it, how junk fees are really creeping across the economy. I think we've all experienced them where we're charged for a service that we never even wanted, or it's charged at a level that is way beyond the cost to provide. And the net effect is it makes competition worse off, harder to comparison shop, and it really chips away at family budget. Who's a specific offender you'd call out? Well, I think across industries, we see big problems. The CFPB polices financial firms, and we have uncovered even illegal junk fees at major institutions, including Wells Fargo. And it's billions and billions of dollars. And we really are pushing for reforms so that pricing and all the key terms are upfront and people can avoid these fees in a fair and transparent manner. I think if we had Wells Fargo or some other company here, they probably wouldn't call them junk fees. They'd call them a service charge. They would have reasons that they think it is justified. Are you arguing that this is just pure profit that they peel off of consumers who can't quite tell it's even happening? Well, here's the thing. I think many people know about so-called overdraft fees. Sure. And, you know, what we have found in certain situations is that the order of transactions is switched around so that instead of one overdraft fee, you get three or four. We find in the credit card industry that they're building a business model in some cases of late fees. You know, it should be that they you borrow, they charge interest, but we have found there's $12 billion of late fees assessed every year. So what we're trying to do is make sure that people are paying for a legitimate service and that penalties are reasonable in accordance with existing law. So I think you're telling me that you have identified companies that you believe are not only charging people extra, but telling them it's your fault. You screwed up. You had an overdraft. Uh, but really, it's creative accounting on the bank's part. Well, there's all sorts of things we've uncovered. Yesterday, we released a report about fees across the financial sector, auto, mortgage, student. Many times a fee is charged for a service that was never even provided. And many times a consumer can't even see what is happening behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, we think a competitive market is one where you can see the real costs up front and you can compare so many people, whether it's airline tickets, concert tickets, see these fees tacked on late in the process. And, th and that's not the sign of a competitive market. In a few seconds, why would you be asking states to address this instead of the federal government doing it? Well, the federal government is, but I see this as an all hands on deck way to make sure that consumers are protected and that our laws are working fairly. So state attorneys general, state lawmakers, all of us can work to go after this. Rohit Chopra is director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. 
A scandal unfolding in Brazil involves millions of dollars worth of jewels, the Saudi government and former president Zair Bolsonaro. The jewels were a gift from the Saudis to Bolsonaro and his wife. Now officials are investigating his efforts to keep them. Here's NPR's Kerry Khan. The jewels are valued at more than 16 million reals, about $3.2 million. They were discovered by a customs official in the backpack of an aide who returned to Brazil from the Saudi kingdom in late 2021. Current finance minister Fernando Haddad says the jewels, reportedly a gift for the former first lady, Michelle Bolsonaro, should have been declared. Nobody can just get a present of 16 million reals, he said. Procedures must be followed, and they weren't, he added. Travelers to Brazil can bring in goods up to $1,000 tax-free. While customs confiscated one set of jewels, apparently there was a second set they missed. It's unclear where that is or how much it's worth. I'm getting crucified for a present I never received, Bolsonaro recently told a Brazilian TV station. He's been living in Florida since leaving Brazil right before leftist Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva took office. Bolsonaro, a far-right nationalist, has never conceded defeat to Lula in last year's close election. Eu nunca abusei de autoridade com ninguém. I've never abused my authority, he said. His lawyer, contacted by NPR, says Bolsonaro did follow all pertinent laws. That's not true, says Daniela Campello, a political scientist at Brazil's FGV private university. I think it's a very straightforward case that everybody understands. It's a lot of money. She says no taxes were paid on the jewelry. And it involves the former first lady who is supposed to be a new leader of the, the far right in Brazil. So I think that's very damaging for the image of both Bolsonaro and his wife. Every day a new revelation in the scandals making headlines, like the latest, this video on Globo News. It's a Bolsonaro aide trying to persuade customs to release the jewels just one day before Bolsonaro left for Florida. This was one of eight attempts his officials made. Bolsonaro's growing legal troubles are complicating his return to Brazil, which he said could be as early as this month. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, President Biden's new budget proposal is set for release today. We look at why it may raise the stakes in his showdown with Republicans over the deficit. And thousands of people are protesting in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia in response to a proposed law that critics say will limit press freedom and civil liberties. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com, member FDIC. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says the latest Russian airstrikes targeting infrastructure across the country are another attempt by Moscow to terrorize Ukrainian civilians. Inna Samsun is a member of Ukraine's parliament. She agrees with Zelensky. What they want to do is to make sure that Ukrainians feel that it's not safe to be here, that they should feel scared all the time. Dozens of Russian missiles left at least six people dead and knocked out power in and around Kyiv. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was hospitalized after suffering a fall at a hotel in Washington last night. NPR's Marie Andrusevich says there's no word on the extent of any possible injuries. A spokesman for the senator says he tripped at a hotel during a private dinner. There's no word on if McConnell will be absent from the Senate. Following a fall in 2019, he worked from home during his recovery. His tenure as leader of the Senate is the longest on record. McConnell is 81 years old. Members of a Senate committee are expected to question the CEO of Norfolk Southern today. Alan Shaw is set to appear following a series of accidents in Ohio involving freight trains operated by the company. They include a derailment in East Palestine, a village near the Pennsylvania border that resulted in the release of toxic chemicals. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Dozens of people with ties to the nation of Georgia gathered in Harvard Square last night. They were there to show solidarity with protesters in their home country, upset with a new draft law. The demonstration was supposed to correspond with a visit by Georgia's president to Harvard, but that event was canceled. WBUR's Irina Machavariani reports. The draft law would require persons and organizations in Georgia to register as agents of foreign influence if they receive more than 20 percent of their funding from outside the country. It mirrors similar legislation in Russia. Opponents say it will limit freedom of media and bring Georgia closer to Russia. Ketevan Bolkwadze is a visiting scholar at Harvard. She says she could not stay at home and watch while thousands of protesters took to the streets back home. What's going on right now is just utterly wrong. It is unconstitutional because it will derail Georgia's integration in the European Union. Similar protests took place in other cities with Georgian diasporas. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majavadiani. We'll have more on the protest going on inside Georgia coming up in about five minutes here on Morning Edition. The Massachusetts Attorney General will start to enforce the state's right-to-repair law in June. The law requires car makers to give independent repair shops access to every part of a car's data. That way, independent mechanics can do repairs as easily as authorized dealers. There's a pending lawsuit in federal court over whether the law is legal. A new lawsuit aims to change policies for student-athletes at Harvard and other Ivy League schools. Two basketball players from Brown University want to overturn the league's policy of not offering athletic scholarships. Their suit claims the policy from the eight schools is an illegal price-fixing scheme to not compensate athletes for their services. The Ivy League is defending its policy, which dates back to 1954. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston with events, book recommendations, book clubs, children's story hour, and more.
PorterSquareBooks.com. The Celtics topped the Portland Trailblazers 115-93 last night at the Garden. The season next game is Saturday in Atlanta. The Bruins will go for their 11th straight win tonight as they host the Edmonton Oilers. More clouds than sun today. It'll be windy with a high in the mid-40s. There's a slight chance of showers late this afternoon. Tonight, cloudy with a low around freezing. Mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the mid-40s. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise, Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin-off of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. President Biden unveils his budget proposal today. And you can think of this as the start of an argument. The president gives ideas for taxes and spending, but Congress eventually decides. Biden says he wants to protect programs Americans rely on, such as Medicare and Social Security. He wants to do that amid pressure to spend less and borrow less. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith joins us once again. Tam, good morning. Good morning. So is the White House saying it's time to borrow and spend less? Let's say caring about the deficit is cool again. Hmm. Uh, Back in 2017, Republicans passed a massive tax cut that has added to the deficit big league in 2020 and 2021, both parties and then just Democrats threw money at the pandemic. Now there is a Democratic president and Republicans are in control of the House. House Republicans are demanding spending cuts. And President Biden has for more than a year touted his own administration's deficit reduction. True, the deficit was so high that it has been coming down, even though it's still high. So what's he want to do now? Well, according to the White House, the president has a plan that would reduce the deficit by nearly $3 trillion over the next 10 years. That comes through a combination of tax increases on the wealthy and big businesses and targeted spending cuts. That sounds like a lot, but Mm -hmm. I spoke with Bob Bixby of the Concord Coalition. It's a group that advocates for responsible federal spending, and he put it into context. $3 trillion is a lot of deficit reduction, and it sounds good. But uh, the Congressional Budget Office says that we're going to add about $20 trillion over the next 10 years. So you'd really have to do about twice that, I think probably more than twice that, in order to keep the debt from rising as a percentage of the economy. Hold on to your seatbelts, he says. The national debt is going to rise a lot. This budget is an opening volley in a high-stakes political fight between President Biden and Republicans over government funding and the debt ceiling. Debt ceiling. Okay, we've talked about that. That is basically paying the bills that the U.S. has already incurred. Republicans have yet to sign on to doing that because they're, they're, they're demanding unspecified spending cuts to lower future spending. In that context, what does the president offer? offering. 
Well, the president's budget leans heavily on cost savings through things like negotiating drug prices and cutting tax breaks on the oil industry. He wants to raise taxes on the wealthy and large corporations. That's something he campaigned on three years ago and will campaign on again. And the White House sees these as popular proposals supported by the majority of Americans. You know, the biggest two sources of government spending are Social Security and Medicare. The president says he doesn't support cutting either of those things in his budget proposal. He has a plan to extend the life of Medicare by another two decades. He, as you say, has talked a lot about the deficit reduction he achieved in his first two years in office, $1.7 trillion. But that came largely because those expensive pandemic era programs ended and there was better than expected job growth. The rest of the deficit reduction to come is going to be a lot harder. What are Republicans saying? They are uh, not excited about this. They say the tax hikes and proposed spending cuts aren't serious. Kevin McCarthy said he wants to negotiate with the president, but he isn't saying exactly what he and Republicans want to cut, though they are saying they don't want to cut Medicare and Social Security either. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith, thanks so much. You're welcome. The ruling party in the eastern European country of Georgia appears to be bowing to two days of anti-government protests where police deployed water cannon, tear gas and stun grenades. Journalist Mikhail Gavadzabia says he was assaulted by police this week. It was really bad, not only because like, I was beaten, but it happened after we told them that we were journalists and I had my press card on my neck. It was really scary. But now a draft law that was criticized as a Russian-style crackdown on civil liberties and press freedoms is being withdrawn. Eto Buzyashvili is a researcher at the Atlantic Council. She was also at the protests in the capital of Tbilisi. Uh, are you surprised about the ruling party's uh, about-face on this uh, proposed legislation? Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, before I jump to the question, um, I would like to highlight that there are three important factors to have in mind for the context. The first is that Georgian people have long been striving for Euro-Atlantic integration, which has the high majority support, basically joining NATO and EU. Second, um, Georgian dreamlet government has been attempting to undermine this process and distance Georgia from the West. And the third, there's a strong and vocal civil society in Georgia, which has been doing their best to support this process of Euro-Atlantic integration and expose government's attempts to undermine rule of law and democracy. And this is the context when the foreign agents law is introduced, which basically intends to label media and civil society organizations that are recipient of the foreign funding as an agent of foreign influence. Basically, it means that the civil society will be stigmatized, weakened, and isolated. Um, and it's crucial that Georgia has to have the strong civil society to advance democracy and get closer to the EU and NATO and not be isolated in the weakened one. Yeah, so in this context, um, there is always the threat that the ruling party will pass this law anytime. Many in Georgia perceive this move, that the withdrawal, as a tactical retreat. Um, according to Georgian legal experts, parliament cannot just withdraw a law which was already passed in the first hearing. It means that the law will either be put on the shelf for some time mm -hmm. or voted down in another hearing which, which doesn't really have a high probability for now. But what, why does a ruling party say it's backing down? 
um, they didn't really elaborate on that. They are just saying that um, people are protesting and basically they are not going into the details. They're just saying that we are withdrawing it. Uh, and again, it should be highlighted that it's not just a law. Uh, the ruling party has long been preparing Georgian society for this law in the information space via attempting to demonize and discredit free media and civil society organizations. And um, during this past two days, the ruling party was surprised to discover that people were not deceived with the propaganda and manipulation. And that's why we are now seeing that uh, they are kind of withdrawing in a tactical mm -hmm. retreat, and maybe they are buying time to regroup and to try to dispress protest in this way. But can this be seen as a, as a win for the anti-government demonstrators in the capital? Yeah, I mean, they, they see this as a kind of small win, but many people, the protesters, are posting on social media that they should not uh, they should not calm down and they should not take this as a as a big pro, uh, big win because again there is always threat that the ruling party will pass this uh, law again. Eto Buzjashvili is a researcher at the Atlantic Council in Tbilisi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, we're listening to the world from two studios here today. I'm at uh, Studio 31 here at NPR. Our director Lindsay Toddy is calling the shots. Hans Copeland is our technical director. Hey, you're in Los Angeles, not quite by yourself, right? No, and the problem is, you can see me, I can't see you. That's a oh, problem. so sad, so sad. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, we look at the impact of Boston's warmer winters on the environment and the city's character. In your forecast, we'll have some gusty winds today under mostly overcast skies. And with temperatures topping out in the mid-40s, there's a slight chance of rain showers late this afternoon and this evening. Otherwise, cloudy tonight with temperatures falling to the low 30s. Tomorrow, we end the week with a sunny day back in the mid-40s. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. Somerville-based startup Right Hand Robotics is welcoming a new CEO. Brian Owen started the job last month. Right Hand's former CEO and co-founder will remain with the company as its chairman. Stoughton-based Franklin Sports is taking over production of Hasbro's Nerf Sports products. The move is part of Franklin Sports's expanding partnership with the Rhode Island Toymaker. Under the deal, Franklin will help develop Nerf toys and manufacture them. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, personalized to your needs. Certapro.com, that's Serta with a C. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Has your snowblower been gathering dust this winter? Have your kids been complaining about a lack of snow days? If you answered yes, you won't be surprised to learn that this winter is shaping up to be among the warmest on record in Massachusetts. Average temperatures are above freezing and snowfall is well below the norm. WBUR's Simone Rios set out to see why there's no snow on the ground in many places and why that matters. This is the standard for measuring all precipitation, whether it's rain, snow, sleet, hail, or mist. Um, and At the Blue Hill Weather Observatory and Science Center, program director Don McCaslin points to a long white board on the ground used to measure snow accumulation. McCaslin says this winter, there's been little to measure at the highest point in greater Boston. 
and I've worked here for 22 years and um, this is tough. We've had some winters where we had to walk across mud to get to certain parts of the ski trail. You know, we'd have to take our skis off, walk a little ways, put them back on again, but nothing to the extreme that we've had this winter. While many locals are happy they haven't had to pull out their snowblowers a single time this winter, some scientists see it as a symbol of a warming climate. This winter's average temperatures are above freezing. That's not unprecedented, but it's not normal either. And McCaslin says it's happening more as time goes on. Yes, and that's one of the things that's been happening more frequently in the 21st century than happened in the 20th century, is we'll get six inches of snow and it's gone before you can blink. And that's a problem because the plants and animals that live here have adapted over thousands of years to surviving freezing winters. At Mass Audubon's Drumlin Farm in Lincoln, biologist Tina Pinney has spent decades listening to the changes in the avian orchestra as a result of climate change. She also watches what's happening on the ground, which has been bare for most of the winter. So snow cover is an integral part of our ecosystem. We are the eastern deciduous forest biome, and, and that whole ecosystem is based on, you know, four distinct seasons, and winter is really the season that defines us. Lots of creatures depend on snow cover. Penny points to a host of little woodland animals, like voles and moles and field mice, that find protection under the snow, both from predators and the cold. She scoops up a handful of snow from the ground and says warmer winters could do away with the habitat so many animals rely on. Even snow this shallow, I can feel several different layers of ice and snow where it has fallen and thawed and refrozen and thawed again. Ice is completely different than snow in terms of the value as an insulator and also for organisms that live under it. In New England, winters are warming faster than any other season, and they're warming faster here than in most of the country. That's according to climate change researcher Elizabeth Burakowski at the University of New Hampshire. She grew up in southern New Hampshire in the 1980s, and she says the winters she knew as a kid are gone. Winters were snowier in the past. Winters were colder in the past. And when I look at climate data from stations all over the northeastern United States, we see that winter has indeed lost its cold. It's lost its snow. And the duration of the cold period, from the first freeze to the last, is three weeks shorter than it was a century ago. None of this is to say we won't see proper blizzards anymore, but Burakowski says our winters will be more like those of our neighbors to the south. What we grew up with is now changing to a climate that's much more like, say, like northern New Jersey. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not one to plan winter vacations in northern New Jersey. So I would say, you know, by the end of the century, if we don't start acting on climate in a very aggressive way, we could expect to see winters like Virginia or even North Carolina. And that means going farther into northern New England to get the same kind of winters we had in Boston just decades ago. Emma Gildesgame studies climate change adaptation at the Nature Conservancy. She says our winters are bound to get a lot messier. These winter storms, as they stop being fluffy snow that's easy to clear, as they start being ice and slush, uh, we have to put down more salt. We have to deal with more just like congealed solid slush. Gilda's Game says we'll have those conditions all winter long, not just in March. And those snowless, slushy, wet winters, they'll change our sense of who we are. 
as New Englanders, we go sledding. We have snow days. We shovel out our spot and fight over a, a, a parking spot. And all of these things are just little pieces of what it means to be a New Englander. And all of that is, is changing. Lowering emissions could help slow climate change, but even with drastic interventions, experts believe New England winters will continue to warm. Perhaps one silver lining of this unusual winter, it's a wake-up call and a reminder to enjoy our fleeting snowstorms, even if it means having to take out the shovels again. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. Coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Celeste Headley is on the line to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Celeste. What do you think? Will you miss the deep, cold, snowy winters? I'm one of those who have been getting complaints from my my 20-something kid that uh, there was no snow this year. So, yeah, I, I, I don't really want to get more ice and slush and mud. 20-something, <laughs> and they're still asking for snow days. That's, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, come on. Snow's better than mud. <laughs> Anyway, I should tell you what's on the show today because it is a very busy news day. Um, Our president is going to unveil his budget proposal, so we'll talk to Scott Horsley about what's going to be included in that. Um, We're going to talk about a new nuclear plant coming to Georgia, not the country, the state that's south of us. And California's governor has cut ties with Walgreens. They are ending a multi-million dollar contract with the pharmacy chain because Walgreens is choosing not to supply um, some abortion drugs in other states. So there is a lot to talk about today. Yeah. Thank you, Celeste. Thanks. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 851. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The price of food continues to rise across the country, but millions of households are seeing a big drop in government food stamp benefits. When the rent and the inflation went up, it really hurt. There are lots of us out here who you can't buy a gallon of milk when we need it. I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. The biggest bank and a new chapter in the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. The biggest of banks, J.P. Morgan Chase, is suing one of its former top executives. The bank claims Jess Staley entangled the company with disgraced financier and convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein and aided in Epstein's sexual abuse and trafficking of girls. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. And David, J.P. Morgan is making some very serious charges against Jess Staley. He was J.P. Morgan's former head of private banking and had been considered even a potential successor for CEO Jamie Dimon. Staley left the bank in 2013, went to become CEO at another financial heavyweight, Barclays, and then resigned in 2021 because of his Epstein ties. 
And while Staley was at J.P. Morgan, the bank claims that Staley vouched for Epstein, protected him, even as public allegations were made against him. And the bank says Staley did it to keep Epstein as a client. Now, these allegations were made in complaints filed yesterday in Manhattan federal court. J.P. Morgan also is accusing Staley of having firsthand knowledge of Epstein's crimes. And J.P. Morgan is accusing Staley of committing sexual abuse himself. Now, there has been no comment from Staley or his lawyers. He has previously expressed regret for his relationship with Epstein and said he didn't know what Epstein was doing. Now, Nova, to understand J.P. Morgan suing Staley like this, we have to remember there are two other lawsuits which seek to hold J.P. Morgan Chase responsible for maintaining ties with Epstein. Right. Those lawsuits were brought by one unidentified woman and by the government of the U.S. Virgin Islands. And they say J.P. Morgan should have known what was going on. And had it not continued to do business with Epstein, it would have made it more difficult for Epstein to maintain his sex trafficking operation. Now, J.P. Morgan is defending itself against those lawsuits. But what it's saying in the new filings is that if it were to be found liable in those suits, it's Staley who should pay part or all of the damages. Nova Safo, thank you. Markets, Dow futures are up a tenth of a percent. S&P futures are up just slightly. NASDAQ futures are down less than a tenth of a percent. Now, in the peer-reviewed journal Nature, evidence that it's possible to create a superconductor at room temperature. This would be a technique to move electricity without the wasteful resistance that produces losses through heat. You can do that now if you make the system cold. I mean, cold. If the University of Rochester-based researchers are really onto something, this could lead to longer batteries, trains that levitate, highly efficient power grids. Now, it's also true that Nature had to retract a paper from the same group on another superconductor, and an accompanying news article also in Nature carries the cautious headline, Hopes Raised for Room Temperature Superconductivity, But Doubts Remain. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where research on how to fight a protein that keeps cancer cells alive is leading to new therapies for some blood cancers. Learn more about this momentum at DanaFarber.org stories. We like to take the economic pulse here, checkups from a range of perspectives. The boom in vinyl records has been good business for record shops, many of which have seen a new and more diverse generation of customers come through their doors. Rene Perez is owner of Sonido del Valle, a record store in the Los Angeles neighborhood of Boyle Heights focused on Latin music records. Rene left his job as a cook to start the enterprise, and he's kept it thriving through pandemic. He told us his story. So this is one of my favorite newer records. My name is Rene Perez, and I own a record store in Boyle Heights, which is a part of East LA. We've been doing it now for about five years. LA has a really like long and rich history of Latin record labels that have been here since the beginning of recorded music. And Latin music, you know, like cumbia, ranchera, salsa, corridos, everything, it's always been around, and I've always heard it in passing, but I didn't actually grow up listening to it. I kind of got into it through DJing. I was just sort of drawn to it, and uh, that's what kind of made me want to start specifically focusing on that as our main thing. I was surprised that there wasn't already a shop nearby. I think, well, when we opened, there was one, and they weren't really carrying, you know, a lot of like local artists or like even like Latin music. So we thought there was definitely uh, a void that we can fill with our shop, and that's kind of what we've been known for since, you know. 
So it was always like a big dream of mine to have a record store. I, I felt like, man, like what better way to get cool records than to have your own shop, right? So I would say since I started buying records, I would always dream about working at a shop or owning a shop. In high school, I was buying CDs like every week. Whenever I'd had any money, I would buy CDs. I'd go to like Tower Records when they were open, I'd go to Warehouse when they were open, and sometimes I'd go to record stores. But the reason I started buying vinyl is because I had friends in high school who told me, hey, you know, you can buy that Cure record for $2 at Goodwill instead of paying $15 for the CD. And they were right. And so it started out that way. It wasn't really because it was vinyl and it sounded better, honestly. It was just because I was broke and I was in high school. <laughs> you know, we have our slow parts of the year and we have our busy parts of the year. and. So we kind of just have to like ride the waves and do what we can to just stay afloat. It's not easy having you know a brick and mortar shop these days, but I feel like people do still want to come and dig and discover stuff, and I feel like that's what we do best. Vinyl, it's definitely popular now. People have had a taste for you know streaming and a taste for physical media, and I think there's a lot of people who want that, you know, like tangible item to hold and to read and to look at. And I think that's not gonna go away. And now, you know, we have people from, you know, as young as 13 to as old as 80 who come here regularly, you know, for Latin records. We have people coming from Europe, we have people coming from South America, we have people coming from Mexico City to buy Mexican records here. Since I had just gotten out of the kitchen, I knew I had to like push hard and make this work. Otherwise, you know, I would have been screwed because I had no other job. You know, I knew it was either this or start looking for another, you know, cookie job or be a janitor somewhere basically, you know? So I really wanted to make it work and I just gave it 110% and it ended up working out, I think, you know. If anybody really wants to open a burger store, they can do it. I mean, if I can do it, you can definitely do it. It's hard, but it's not that hard if you love it. Rene Perez, owner of Sonido del Valle in East Los Angeles, in an economic pulse produced by Marketplace's Jarrett Dang. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with our morning report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Watch out for some high winds today. It'll also be cloudy with temperatures in the mid-40s. There's a slight chance we may see some rain late this afternoon. Cloudy and low 30s tonight, then back to the mid-40s tomorrow under sunny skies. It's 38 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Experience new heights with music by Mendelssohn and Mozart's first flute concerto. Next weekend at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, the words in our favorite books never change. The words on our e-readers can. Writing used to be set in stone, literally and figuratively, but digital copyright holders can change the content of that favorite book if it's, say, on your iPad. The Boston Globe's Hiawatha Bray explains. That's Radio Boston Today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. 
WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.